Thank you for downloading the following message from the Pickerington Church of Christ. We pray that this message will be a blessing to you as you walk with the Lord. For more information or to find additional resources, locate us on the web at pickeringtonchurch.org. Enjoy the message. Tim, good evening, church. Church family, it's so good to see you all tonight. Watkins family, welcome. Boy, we're glad to have you all. I stand between you and ice cream, so we better get to business, right? <laughs> I got to be honest with you. I actually skipped dinner tonight on purpose. I literally did not eat dinner. My, my family ate dinner, and I just didn't eat dinner. Caleb, good to see you, buddy. I'm going to borrow that tie from you soon. Looking handsome tonight. Looking handsome. We're so glad to have our Watkins family with us. Uh, it's good to, be, good to see you. Um, our, for those of you who may not know, um, our congregation has cross paths with Watkins Road several times uh, over the last few years, whether it's at church camp or our youth mission team has been over to see Watkins Road a few times um, uh, to spend some time with them. And we have grown to love them from a distance at different times in different places. And um, I was talking to Alan probably, I don't know, maybe a month ago. And we're like, we just need to spend some time with them, spend some more time with them. They're great people. And we're, we are so glad you're here uh, to be with us. I see we're going to be in Mark chapter 3 tonight. And Mark chapter 3 is a really interesting chapter. Let me give you the theme of Mark chapter 3, the kind of the picture of what's going on in this chapter. And then as we work through it, it'll begin to make sense. What you see in Mark chapter 3 are portraits of a bunch of different people and a bunch of different groups that get really, really close to Jesus for a lot of different reasons. A lot of different groups and a lot of different people get close to Jesus. Now, I want to remind you, for those of you that may, um, when you're reading the Gospels, not quite remember all the time, that the Gospels are not just a historical account of Jesus' life. They're not written like an encyclopedia or a history book. The Gospels were written evangelistically, meaning that they were written to try to convert people to know Jesus Christ. That's why they were written. And so we have in Mark chapter 3, Mark writing, and he brings together a bunch of stories in Mark 3 that all have to do with the idea of coming close to Jesus, being near to him, being in his presence, getting to know him. And yet all of them have sort of different reasons different experiences. Let me just tell you a few of them. We'll just walk through the chapter together. We're going to start in the beginning there, and we see Jesus enters into a synagogue, and there we have a group called the Pharisees. You're familiar with them. you probably heard people talk about them before. And there's a man with a withered hand. Now, it's on the Sabbath day, and up until this point, Jesus has sort of, he hasn't come out all the way and really frustrated the Pharisees to the fullest extent just yet, but he's been poking at them. He's been prodding them. And so they see Jesus, and they see the man with the withered hand, and they're wondering, what's Jesus going to do? Now look down in verse 1. He says, again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. Now the Pharisees, verse 2, they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal, them on the, heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. Now, here's our first group that's going to get close to Jesus, near to Jesus. The Pharisees, 
They're in the synagogue with him. It's probably a building similar to what we're in today. Like, in some sense, groups of people would gather together. They would do different things in this building. And as they were there, they got close enough to be able to see Jesus, to watch Jesus. They were listening to him. And Jesus, in verse 3, it says this. He said to the man with the withered hand, come here. So here's the second man that's going to be close to Jesus. This man has a withered hand. And he says to them, the Pharisees, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or harm? To save a life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out. And his hand was restored. And it says then, the Pharisees went out. And they held counsel with each other and the Herodians to see how they were going to destroy him. So here's the first portrait we see of a group of people that get close to Jesus. First of all, the man with the withered hand. He was brought close to Jesus so that Jesus could use him to display the graciousness of God, the power of God, the goodness of God. This is how good and how powerful and how great God is. Now watch. And then the Pharisees are there. Now, they come close to Jesus for a different reason. They've got some alternative motives. They're not very uh, pure in their heart. And when they come up to Jesus, they come to him not to seek what he has to say, not to learn from his teaching, not to find out who he is or what he's made of. They come to Jesus to find a fault in him. You see, these, this is the group of people that are envious of Jesus. They don't like the attention that Jesus is getting for being a good teacher they don't like the attention that he's getting for being a prominent person in the community now. He didn't go to their schools. He's not part of their social class. He hasn't existed in their world. And so they're frustrated and envious of Jesus. And because of that, they come close to Jesus to try to find a fault in him. That's why they're near to him. Well, let's look at the second group, verses 7 through 10. That's the first group. The man with the withered hand, he was there to display the greatness of God, also reveal the wicked hearts of the Pharisees. The Pharisees come close to Jesus, but they just want to find fault with him because they're jealous of him. Then we see a crowd come to Jesus. Jesus, after he leaves the synagogue, withdraws away with his disciples. And there becomes, there's this crowd. Mark says it's a great crowd, meaning it's probably large in number. A lot of people. And they come from all over. They come from Galilee and Judea, from Jerusalem and Edomia, from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. And when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. Here's the third group. This group comes to Jesus, a great crowd from all over, because they are in need of something. They need Jesus to do something for them. They hear all about this news that this man named Jesus has done miraculous things, that he's healed sick, that he's helped people who can't talk to talk, who can't hear to hear. He's helped people rise even from the dead, and they're amazed by that. They're reacting to this news of this guy, and they come close to Jesus. And they have shown up for the spectacle of who Jesus is in hopes that they might get something from him too. Now, I want to point out quickly that Mark does not condemn them for this. Mark doesn't point out saying, you, you guys are just trying to use Jesus for what he's able to do, or you guys are just trying to get something from him. While that is their motivation, they hear about all the healings and all the miraculous things that Jesus has done, they want to come close to him. Mark doesn't condemn them, Jesus doesn't condemn them, and neither should we. In fact, if we lived in that day and age, 
and we're struggling with an illness or had a difficulty or a challenge that we wanted to be fixed and we heard of a man who had over and over and over by witness of people we trust said he fixes problems, we might show up too, right? And they come close to Jesus. Now they're getting near to him, but they're not necessarily there for the teaching or even to follow. They are there to receive. And then there's a small group in verses 11 and 12. You might not count this as a group, but I think you will if you read it with me. He says in verse 11, Then there was an unclean spirit that saw him. And these unclean spirits that saw him fell down before him and they cried out, You are the Son of God. Now up until this point, we've seen a great crowd from all over the region. We've seen the Pharisees who were religiously educated and social elites. And we've seen a man who is worshiping in the synagogue with a withered hand who is healed. And yet nobody until this point in Mark chapter 3 has identified him as God's son, as divine. And all of a sudden, the one group that gets it right about his identity, that knows who he is, is the unclean spirits. You see, they come near to Jesus. They recognize who he is, but here's who they represent. Those who are unwilling and unable to repent and actually follow. There are a group of people in our world today that actually know truth about who Jesus is. They understand realities about Jesus. They acknowledge things that might be true from Scripture about what He has said about Himself and what the Bible has said about Him, but stand in contrast to wanting to submit their lives to Him, to wanting to change and wanting to follow Him. That's how this group gets close to Jesus. Now I'm going to pass over the apostles because we're going to finish with them in just a moment. But bump down to verses 22 through 30. There's two more groups that come to Jesus. We see two instances with his family that I'm going to explain in just a moment. But there's an instance with this group called the scribes in verses 22 through 30. And they come close to Jesus. The scribes come down from Jerusalem and here's what they're saying about Jesus to Jesus. He is possessed... By Beelzebul, by the prince of the demons, he cast out demons. So what they're saying is, this man has ability, he has power, he has capabilities, and what he's doing is by the power of the devil. And so what the scribes are doing, because remember, they are the religious elite, they are oftentimes the ones who are relied upon for the law and the teaching, they are the intellects of this society. Pharisees are the movers and shakers, the religious leaders, they're the ones who probably are higher, upper, upper um, class people. The scribes are the ones who are the highly educated, trained in the letter of the law, and were the ones who, were the, who had the skill in writing. And so they knew the law well. It wasn't just that they were um, you know, an administrative assistant that would write down things. They were actually trained and learned in the law. And here's what they come to Jesus close to do. They want to prove that they're better than him. There's no way that a guy who hasn't been trained like we've been trained, who hasn't been to the same schools that we've been to and has the same degrees that we have. There's no way that this man is superior to us. Now remember, at the age of 12, he was already shocking people with what he knew about Scripture. And he's been an amazing teacher up until this point. And yet the scribes come, and what they want to do is cut him down. They don't want him to be better than them, and so they want to be superior to him. And Jesus then goes on to borrow from Abraham Lincoln some reasoning about, you know, a house divided. Again. That's a joke. Abraham Lincoln didn't say that. 
I get criticized for my jokes being lame. I guess that'll be one of them. That's fine. I thought that was ironic and funny, but whatever. Just for that, five more minutes before I scream. Let me give you the last family, the last group that comes close to Jesus that misses the point. And that's his family, biological family. You see, his family comes twice. After he spends time with his apostles, in verse 20 it says, Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. When his family, his biological family, heard it, they went out to seize Jesus. They were saying, Jesus was saying, I'm sorry, they were saying about Jesus, he's out of his mind. So the first instance we see, his biological family, probably his brothers, my best guess, he had a lot of brothers, come to Jesus and they're wanting to grab him and to control him. And then later we see in verse 31, his mother and his brothers come down where he is teaching and they stand outside of the room where he's teaching and they're calling for him to come to them. They're saying, Jesus, come to us. And a crowd was sitting around Jesus. They said to him, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. You see, Jesus' biological family came close to him, but here was their challenge. They wanted to control him. They wanted to manage him. They weren't necessarily at this point trusting what he was doing. They weren't necessarily following him. They still wanted to be um, his family in the sense in which they wanted to control him. They wanted him to conform to their will and what they wanted to do. That's why when the crowd was around him and people couldn't eat, they wanted to go seize him and bring him back because maybe he's out of his mind. And when they came to the house where he was teaching, they were calling for him to stop what he's doing and come to them. And Jesus said, listen, my family are those who do the will of God. Now, you've seen these groups, the Pharisees, the man, the family, the great crowd, the scribes. My point in telling you all these stories is this. Usually people in groups who miss who Jesus is have something in common about them. And there's something in common about all of these groups. Think about the Pharisees. They were all in the same social class. In fact, you wouldn't be a Pharisee if you didn't fit into their social situation. So you went to the same dinners, you went to the same events, you went to the same places with them, you, you hung around with the same people, you rubbed elbows with the same group. That's who the Pharisees were. And so they had the same social class. They had the same political leanings. They had the same religious understandings. They became a group. Jesus' family had the same blood and the same shared background and experience, same culture in which they grew up in. The great crowd, although they were different from where they came from, had a shared desire. You see, what unified them around Jesus, that great crowd, although they were from different places, was they were wanting something from him, gifts and not the giver. The scribes, very similar to the Pharisees, they had the same education, the same training, they had the same kind of work. But we come to this group in the middle there, in verse 13. This group is the apostles. They're about to be called the apostles. And something different is about them. The apostles, he says in verse 13, he went up on the mountain and he called to him. So Jesus is drawing near to him a group of people. They called to them those whom he desired and they came to him. And he appoints the twelve who he also named apostles. He goes on to list them. 
And when you get into learning about who these men are, their backgrounds, their experiences, you realize that these men come from different professions. Did you know that four of them were fishermen? One of them was a tax collector, a publican. One of them was a zealot, a patriot, maybe in a, a, a smaller type of a military. And the other ones, we don't necessarily know what they were doing professionally, but they were different. They all came, as I mentioned, from different political leanings. One man was a zealot, which meant that he was totally against Rome controlling them. He was fiercely against that. In fact, he had taken up an oath to take the lives of those who would side with those who controlled and agreed with Rome controlling them. He was so passionate about the Jewish people, the Israelite people, taking back control from Rome authority that he took a vow to kill people who were leaning on the side of Rome. And in the same group, there's a man who is collecting money from his people to give to Rome, Matthew. In this group, we've got people that are of different professions, different political leanings, different social classes. We've got some business owners, and we've got some people like Matthew, who was pretty wealthy at this time, and then there are people that are pretty impoverished. People from different backgrounds, different families, different experiences. You see, what happens in this group, it becomes so unique, so different. In fact, if you were a religious leader in this time and you were seeking to start a religious movement, you would not pick such a diverse, strange, weird group of people to come together. In fact, it probably in your mind, would, in my mind would say, this is not going to work. This is why the Pharisees collected together. This is why the scribes got together in their group. This is why Jesus' family stayed together or the other groups. This is why groups form because you get around that which makes you comfortable. And yet Jesus, when he calls to himself a group of people, they have all kinds of differences. And there's a reason. Two things stand out. The first one is this. The Bible says Jesus called these 12 to himself those whom he desired. He wanted it this way. He wanted it this way. He drew them in to himself. Why? Why would he do that? Because there's something different about this group. All these other groups have come close to Jesus. The Pharisees to find fault. The scribes to make him inferior. The family to control his will. And yet this group comes together for a reason. It says Jesus brought them together so that they might be with him and then he might send them out to preach and to have authority to change the lives of people. Do you see the difference? Every other group came close to Jesus to impose upon Jesus what they wanted. And yet Jesus calls together a group of such different background to say, I'm going to put you together and then I'm going to send you out to preach and to teach the gospel. You see, you and I were made by God for community. We were made for fellowship. We were actually created out of a being, God, who existed before the world began in fellowship, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But we cannot seek fellowship first. We must seek Jesus first and find fellowship. Do you understand the difference? You are made for fellowship. Know that about your soul. Know that about your being. You are made to be connected to people. You are not made to be alone in this life. But you cannot first seek fellowship alone because here's what you'll do. You'll find your fellowship in the people that have the same job as you or just live in the same neighborhood as you. 
or have the same interests as you or root for the same teams that you root for, if all you seek is fellowship first, you will find the things that you like and find people that agree with you. But if you seek Jesus first, you will find a fellowship that transcends any of those things and has a stability to outlast any of those things failing. I'm reminded of that verse in 1 John chapter 1, verse 7. When John tells us this, he says, first of all, in his book, I have written these things so that you will have joy. Meaning, I wrote this entire letter so that those who are reading it will find a kind of joy that they, you can't find anywhere else. And then he says, God is light. In him is no darkness at all. And he comes down to verse 7 and says, When you and I walk in the light, meaning we walk in God, walk in Jesus Christ, when we make walking in the light our first priority, the very first thing he says is this, when you and I walk in the light, we have fellowship with one another. This doesn't just mean you go to church. What he's talking about is something more than just showing up at a building with people that you just go to church with. It's more than that. It's deeper than that. When you walk in the light, which means to be open and honest about your sin and your struggle, because he'll say in verse 9, we have to confess so that we can have forgiveness and cleansing. When you walk in light saying, lead me and guide me by your word, God, Jesus Christ, show me who you are and show me who I am so that I can come closer to you and be more like you. When you walk in the light, you will find other people in the light. And there's a kind of fellowship that's found amongst people who walk in the light, a kind of openness and a vulnerability and a trust and a confidence and a hope that is unlike anything else in this world you'll find. So you and I must come to Jesus first. And in, around Jesus, when you circle around Jesus, you'll find other people who love him too. And that's a kind of gospel-centered fellowship that our world needs to see from us. Paul was amazed by the mystery of the gospel. Remember he said in Ephesians, this mystery has been, it almost like blew his mind because he says, look, we've got people coming from all over, different places, different backgrounds. He says the blood of Jesus Christ has dissolved the wall of hostility between us and has brought together aliens from strangers who were, who were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. It's brought together Jews and has put together these people who say, I trust and know and love Jesus Christ, and I declare to the world that we can be one regardless of our, any other problem or challenge we face in this life. That's the, what the gospel is trying to scream, not just through our words, but through our life. That Jesus Christ draws people in. He can save to the uttermost. That there is no one group, one kind that he saves, but he saves us all. And when we're drawn in by Jesus Christ, him alone. When we come to Him, not to impose what we want on Him or want Him to do for us, but when we come to Him, He'll send us out to preach the gospel and to change lives. That's the whole point. And man, that's the kind of fellowship that I want each and every one of us to enjoy, especially around ice cream. So let's get to the invitation. Because you've got to first come to Jesus. If you don't know Jesus, or maybe you've been doing this thing called church for a while, maybe you're in the flow of religion, you know the language, you know the insider talk, you've got it all figured out, but maybe you're not actually sitting at the feet of Jesus in this kind of spiritual fellowship you're missing. If church relationships frustrate you, you might be missing walking in the light. 
Maybe, maybe it's a problem with the fellowship. Maybe it's a problem with you. But if, when you get close to Jesus Christ, fiercely follow him. You're going to bump into other people following him too. And if you haven't found that or you don't have that yet, we want to help you follow Jesus because you're going to find some people there, especially him. You can come as we stand and sing if you have a need.